and welcome to this week's Bunker Roundtable. I'm Ros Taylor. Coming up in today's edition, how do you find common ground when the other side spends so much time trying to rile you? We talked to political scientist Yasha Mounk about how we can find common ground and keep democracy alive. We look at how the cost of living crisis could play out, and as Britain's railway workers plan to strike, we talk about our dream road trips if fuel were no object. All that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Just a reminder that the second episode of our new podcast, Origin Story, is out now. This week, Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky take a deep dive into the concept of conspiracy theories. It's not to be missed. Now, let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to former diplomat and host of the Doomsday Watch podcast series, Arthur Snell. Hi, Ros. Arthur, Russian forces are reportedly making some advances in the East, and Ukrainian officials have said that they have the upper hand. Will Ukraine be able to drive Russia out of the territory it's captured? That's a very difficult question to answer. Certainly, Russia appears to have done a better job of focusing their efforts in one place, uh, so particularly this town of uh, Severodonetsk, which is in the Luhansk region of Donbass, The latest today is that the Russian forces are on the edge of that city. Having said that, about a week ago, there was talk that the Russians were about to encircle the whole uh, Ukrainian army in that area. And it looks as though that hasn't worked. So it sort of suggests that the Russians still aren't quite kind of carrying out what you might call the textbook military operation. And the other thing that's ongoing now is that Western countries are frantically trying to send in bigger and heavier weapons to the Ukrainian side. So there may be what we're seeing now is sort of the high watermark of what Russia is able to do, or maybe it's the beginning of Russia actually getting a bit of a breakthrough. So I haven't really answered your question, but I suppose those are the factors in play. But you give me a much better idea of what's going on. (laughs) Thank you. Also with us is the Atlantic staff writer, Yasmin Sirhan. Welcome to the bunker, Yasmin. Hello, thanks for having me. Yasmin, 19 pupils and two teachers died in last week's school shooting in Uvalde. Firearms are now the number one cause of death among kids in America. Is there any hint that US gun laws might get a bit stricter? I'm not going to be holding my breath. Um, Yeah, I mean, put simply, no, I I don't think we're really seeing any sort of meaningful movement on that front. Uh, The Democrats, obviously, I think would like to pass some level of sensible gun control, even things as basic as background checks. The Republicans, there simply aren't enough to sign off on that sort of thing. Um, I mean, there has been some talk of some bipartisan conversations happening. Um, Senator uh, Chris Murphy of Connecticut, um, who represented Sandy Hook, actually, around the time of the massacre, he's been holding some bilateral or bipartisan talks with some lawmakers. But, you know, they face kind of difficult odds, getting enough support uh, for a bill, um, you know, enough support, I guess, enough votes uh, necessary to overcome the Senate filibuster. What's unfortunate is that actually President Biden has a lot of experience with this particular issue. As a senator, he played a key role in passing the 1994 assault weapons ban, which expired in 2004 when Congress failed to renew it. And as vice president, he actually tried to pass through modest measures uh, that required expanded background checks in the um, aftermath of Sandy Hook. And that died on the Senate floor. So whether he's going to be more successful as president, again, I'm not optimistic. Still to be seen. Yeah. 
This week's special guest is Yasha Mauk, political science professor at John Hopkins University in America and author of the new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Welcome to the bunker, Yasha. Thank you so much. The New Statesman says this week there's a new clash of cultures in New York between transgressive Manhattan and progressive Brooklyn. For the benefit of those of us who haven't been to New York in quite some time and definitely too long, tell us what's going on here. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, there's this idea that um, Brooklyn has now become the center of a sort of orthodox kind of progressivism. And uh, some of his articles centered around the pandemic, that during the pandemic, Brooklyn was incredibly careful about COVID. Um, I actually feel that a little bit uh, at the moment. So I'm living uh, temporarily really quite deep into Brooklyn in uh, a neighborhood where there's a lot of religious Muslims, a lot of orthodox Jews. Nobody wears a mask. You take the train towards Manhattan, you go through the sort of affluent, you know, hip young part of Brooklyn, everybody wears a mask. You keep going into Manhattan and only half of the people wear the mask. And so the idea is that nobody was partying during the pandemic in Brooklyn, even quite late into it. But in Manhattan, you suddenly had the emergence of this sort of younger literary crowd that's more transgressive, that's not listening to all of those rules, that sort of do what they want. And this article posits that perhaps this is um, the beginning of a real cultural rift and perhaps the sort of end of a dominance of a certain kind of no fun leftism, let's say. The only thought that I had reading this article, which I did by coincidence a couple of days ago, is that I'm very glad that I'm too old to have to pretend to be part of either of these scenes. <laughs> and, um, you know, I spent a few months in uh, in my 20s really mostly hanging out in the sort of Brooklyn literary scene. And I have to say that uh, of all of the different kinds of circles I've been a part of in my life, it was the least interesting, personally warm, or, or actually glamorous in the world. So if any of your listeners have visions of having, you know, wanting to have been to one of those legendary parties at the Paris Review or some other New York literary magazine, you're not missing out. <laughs> well, that's reassuring to hear, because at some period in my life, I, I probably would have quite liked that idea. Barely had the Sue Gray report landed when Chancellor Rishi Sunak finally announced help with the cost of living crisis. He's pinched Labour's idea of a windfall tax on energy companies and will be giving every household £400 off their energy bills with more for the poorest, pensioners and those on disability benefits. Bills are due to rise by another £800 in the autumn and there are warnings of blackouts if Russia cuts gas supplies to Europe. So start stocking up on candles now because it's going to be dark as well as cold. Arthur, this was a more generous package of help than some people expected. Do you think it was enough? Well, probably nothing's enough, but I think I have to be fair to someone who I'm not politically aligned with that I think it was a decent package. I think it had a combination of sort of progressive elements and universal elements. There are arguments, of course, about whether someone who can well afford their energy bills, perhaps I'm one of those people, should get uh, extra money off. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, there is still some uh, positive argument in favour of universal uh, benefits, I think, in a society facing something like a cost of living crisis. So I think on balance, uh, you can snipe at the Tories for stealing Labour's ideas. But I think ultimately, th- this seemed like a fairly serious attempt to try and, you know, match the problem. Some Tories made it clear that they were very unhappy with a windfall tax, and the mail grumbled that the government needed to start cutting taxes instead of levying them. Is this really going to stop energy companies investing in renewables, as some people claim? No, I just cannot see why that would be the case. Well, one, because obviously 
if you've got uh, a long-term challenge with hydrocarbon supplies, I would have thought that investing in renewables isn't a bad idea. And secondly, everyone knows that this is a fairly short-term uh, windfall tax. And, and of course, several people in the energy industry said it wouldn't make any difference to them at all. So I think that, that, that's not an argument. And, you know, there are there are some predictable grumblers. I think there was a hereditarily wealthy Tory MP who talked about throwing red meat to the socialists. Uh, but, you know, I think most normal human beings can see why this is happening. Yasmin, household energy bills are a big part of the cost of living crisis because they're the most obvious one. They're the first one to hit. But they're not the only one. What are other knock-on effects of these high prices going to be? I've heard talk about swimming pools having to close down, for example. Oh, gosh. I hadn't even considered stuff like that. I mean, the most immediate sort of knock-on effect I thought of was the effect on business and the fact that, you know, consumers are going to be facing it, rising prices, not just in their bills, but even going shopping. In fact, you know, the the, um, the ONS had some really interesting recent figures out that showed that even just basics like pasta and crisps and bread. Um, I have the I actually found the data, so I made sure I didn't get it wrong. They've jumped 15% in cost in the past year, and that's higher than the rate of inflation. So you're finding that, you know, I think particularly when you're taking into account some of the poorest households, I mean, as Arthur mentioned, that, you know, the support that they're getting from the government, that is going to be a boost, especially for them. But you're going to find that even just basics. And if you're a family that doesn't have a ton of money and your primary spending is on things like energy and food, then you're going to find that in terms of inflation, you're actually facing much higher prices than wealthier people are. Yeah, I saw that crisps have gone up, but potatoes are down, which of course is bad news because, because potatoes are, take pizza, a long time yeah. to cook. Yeah. Do you think we or, or the energy companies have any idea what to do if millions of people still can't pay their bills after this help? No, I, I have no idea. And I think what kind of concerns me is that we're dealing with this now weeks away from summer and to just think about fast forwarding into the winter, sort of the impact that this is going to have, especially when costs might be higher for people approaching the holidays. You know, this one-off is great, but I feel like there's going to need to be some sort of long-term solutions for this. And especially as it pertains to Ukraine, this war has been going on for quite a while. I think the fact of the matter is it's probably going to carry on going for quite a while longer. So to the extent that that's having an impact, I feel like the government does have to start thinking about what are sort of longer term solutions or are they just going to be have to respond in this way in the short term? Because I think if, if there's anything that we've learned from the pandemic, it's that the people generally no longer have an expectation that the government can't respond. We've seen them respond to crises and this is a crisis. And unfortunately, there may be more. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Energy companies just cutting people, particularly pensioners, for example, just cutting them off. And that's what I find particularly worrying about this crisis because I think there will be people who really struggle to pay their bills and somehow do it. And then there will be some people who give up and they may well end up, unfortunately, in the same in the same situation. And it's it's a it's a terrifying prospect, really, isn't it? Yeah, no, I've seen even reports of I mean, obviously, this isn't even just kind of the worst of it, but people who are saying that they're spending potentially going to spend more on their energy bills than they are on their rent. Um, in that case, that means that they'll often have to move home. If they have to move home, maybe they can't go to their jobs. I mean, it's it's going to be pretty disastrous for a lot of people. After the timing of this package, it was evidently partly designed to save big dog as the PM likes to call himself. How do you rate Johnson's chances of survival at the moment? On Friday, I would have said quite good. On Monday, as we record, I'm maybe I'm thinking less. How does it look like to you? Well, certainly you've got a sort of trickle of Conservative MPs coming out and saying they don't have confidence in him. Uh, and they tend to be MPs in places that look 
uh, vulnerable politically. So you've got the guy in Winchester where the Lib Dems ran him close at the last election. Um, another MP somewhere in the southeast, I think, just came out as well. And then there are two by-elections coming up, which look very difficult for the ruling party. So that Tiverton one where the uh, porn-watching tractor lover had to stand down, and then uh, Wakefield where, rather more seriously, uh, child sex offences in the previous MP. So there are both... Uh, lots of reasons why people might vote against the Tories in both of those seats. Having said all of that, it seems to me quite possible that if uh, Johnson can make it to the long summer break, which MPs have weeks and weeks on end, that might just allow people to sort of calm down a little. Not that they like Johnson, um, but they, they might wonder who who else is going to be um, you know waiting in the wings. Well, I wanted to ask you that because does anyone else in the Conservative Party want to take over. It's not exactly a, a job that looks very appealing at the moment, is it? I don't think it does. No, I, it seems reasonably clear that Jeremy Hunt's rather interested in it. He sort of popped up on the agenda and he's everything that Boris Johnson isn't. He's sort of sensible and dull, a bit more centrist. He's produced a book about um, dealing with, with medical failures, but it's quite a serious, engaging book about how the NHS can manage this this challenge. So I think uh, he's somebody who would be the sort of the anti-Boris Johnson, but it's still it's quite a poison chalice to take that on with an economic crisis, with Labour sort of edging up in the polls. So it's not a very desirable job, certainly. And it feels like anybody who took over would be firefighting. Can you think of any way, anything they could do to try to reset the agenda? It's hard to imagine because I think the really difficult economic stuff is going to be next winter. I mean, we've already touched on it with the energy crisis and so on. That's when I think it goes from being something you worry about to something that fundamentally changes the way you live your life. And then you've really only got a year and a bit until the election itself, unless you had someone who was able to completely change the government's approach, perhaps sort of relive the the COVID years in terms of government spending or something like that. It's hard to imagine how you can kind of wriggle out of this one. Yeah, sure. What does history tell us about how democracies react during a cost of living crisis? Let me say, first of all, I didn't realise that Boris Johnson refers to him as big dog, himself as big dog. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think of him more as shaggy dog. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, well, look, there's, there's, there's very good political science studies which show that a lot of government popularity depends on the performance of the economy, um, whether or not it's rationally linked. Right, so it's quite clear that at the moment the crisis in cost of living is pretty global. We're seeing it not just in the United Kingdom, but also in the United States and in a lot of countries in continental Europe. And you know, the popularity of each government is affected negatively by that. Um, some of these are left-wing governments, some of these are right-wing governments. Uh, doesn't seem to matter very much. And there's a there's a famous study uh, about New Jersey, the Jersey Shore in the 1910s. And what we found was that after shark attacks, the president who was running for re-election, uh, which was Woodrow Wilson, I believe, got a lot less of a vote in towns that suffered shark attacks than in towns a few miles down the coast where there was no shark attacks and therefore no drop in tourism and therefore a better economy. And so I think one of the frustrating things about being in office is you just got to hope that things go your way. Um, so, you know, what would the next prime minister do? Well, they would, first of all, try to dissociate themselves from some of the personally toxic things about Boris Johnson and say, we're starting with a clean slate and we're going to be moral and we're going to be sensible and we're going to be sort of dull. Uh, and then they just have to hope that they can cling on long enough that by the time of the next election, 
the economy is on the upswing and that would help them gain popularity. But I think in the end, Boris Johnson, as much as a successor, will be hostage to those economic uh, uh, developments, which are largely, not entirely, but largely out of their hands. That's a particularly interesting study, the shark study, because Johnson has actually compared himself to the mayor in Jaws. <laughs> times. I, I presumably he hasn't read this study. I assume he hasn't read a lot of political science. The US isn't facing quite the same energy supply problems as Europe, but you are facing some. I mean, gas prices have risen quite a lot, haven't they? Who are people blaming for that? Are they blaming Joe Biden or do they see it as a wider problem? You know, I think it's, it, it's odd. Most people always blame the government in one way and not the other, which is to say that I think if you had an in-depth conversation with most American voters and said, do you really think this is the fault of Joe Biden? Those who are predisposed to dislike him in any case would, would completely blame him for it. And most said, well, you know, probably it's not entirely his fault. But in terms of electoral behavior, they're likely to blame him because people just tend to vote on, do I feel like I'm doing better than I was Four years ago, do I think that things are looking up? And if not, then perhaps we should change teams. So, you know, in a sort of deep moral sense, I don't think that most people are blaming Joe Biden and they really think it's his fault. But uh, for the purposes of politics, uh, they are. And that is one of the reasons why his approval ratings continue to be very deeply underwater, which is obviously concerning in the American context, because we do have a very radical Republican Party. And if Biden continues to be as unpopular as he is right now in two years' time, that'll make it at least very feasible that Donald Trump becomes the 47th president of the United States as well as the 45th. Yasmin, there's a lot to think about here, but what most worries you about the way this crisis is being handled in the UK? So a trend that I feel like I've seen, because I'm, I'm trying to remember when the windfall tax was even like discussed, but it feels like it was quite a while ago. I feel like whether it was during the pandemic or even now, I think the government on a, like has a tendency to respond too late. Like we talk about the solutions, but the answers come a lot later. And, and my worry is if they kind of continue with that trend, almost seeming to be pushed into solutions rather than coming up with them and acting on them quickly, that people are going to be in trouble, that they're going to suffer financially or, God forbid, even, you know, I mean, in, in the dead of winter, if people have their energy shut off, like, God forbid, even die. I mean, these are things that we've heard about happening in, like, you know, massive heat waves where people don't have air conditioning. But, you know, in the reverse, I kind of just worry as a Californian, I can attest, this is a pretty cold country relative to what I'm used to in the winter. So obviously, a lot of this is tied to the war and sort of whether public sentiment shifts at all with regard to foreign policy in that respect, whether or not people are kind of tying the two together, but whether their patience starts to wane because of the crises and maybe seeing that they've, they've paid too much. So they might begin to feel that our support for Ukraine is not paying off for them. I mean, potentially. I mean, this isn't something that I've seen. I mean, certainly not in this country. You're not going to hear anyone talk about that and not even necessarily say that they should. I think by and large, the British people are very supportive of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. And and I don't necessarily see that changing, but I, I think there could potentially be some frustration if they see it as though, you know, this, especially if we're kind of coming towards the end of the year, if this war has been going on for that long, they'll rightly expect their governments to have found a solution by then. Our guest today is Yasha Mang, political science professor at Johns Hopkins University and author of four books on a variety of political issues. His latest book, The Great Experiment, looks at why democracies fall apart and how they can endure. Yasha, we mentioned the horrific school shooting earlier. From the outside looking in, 
It often feels as though America is paralysed on this issue, unable to revisit the Second Amendment. But is the Constitution just a convenient excuse for inaction? Could the US reform gun laws if it really wanted to? Well, I think there's two problems here. One is just that the United States is incredibly politically polarized. I know that it can feel as though Britain were very polarized. And certainly during the last years of this Brexit debate, it was. It's much more polarized than it used to be. But compared to the United States, the ability of British politicians to say there are certain rules in which we agree. And when something is really important, we can actually have serious conversations with each other. Uh, it's just completely different. Even at a personal level, um, most leading British politicians don't hate each other. Well, they all hate Boris Johnson, but we don't hate each other as much as Democrats and Republicans do in, in the United States. So one problem is just the extent of mutual partisan hatred, the fact that because of a set of institutional factors, most elected politicians in the United States worry much more about the most ideologically fringe parts of their base who may have to convince in primary elections than they do about the opinions of 75% of the population. Um, and that makes it really hard to pass something like uh, uh, gun laws, because if you're a Republican, 70% of people, 75% of people may be in favor of various background checks and so on. But most people who are voting in the primary election, which is uh, what your job depends on, do not believe in them. And then you do have a second problem, I think, which is the way in which the uh, culture of the United States Constitution pushes people towards debate on fundamental principles rather than compromises. So when it comes to controversial questions, whether it is something like gun laws, or whether in, United, in Britain something like hunting laws, which are controversial for, for sort of specific reasons, or of course social issues like abortion, in most countries, you have legislators coming together and hammering out some kind of compromise that nobody is entirely happy with, but everybody can live with. In the United States, it always feels that, you know, these are rights that have been given to us in the Bill of Rights, in the first 10 amendments to the Constitution in particular. And we have to defend them absolutely at the outest edge, because if we don't defend them at the outest edge, then they might completely disappear. And the people who are going to make the decision about this are ultimately these nine unelected judges. So I'm a believer in strong courts, which are able to step in when elected governments really overstep the boundaries of their power. But I do worry about the way in which that constitutional discourse in the United States just supercharges disagreement about all of these kinds of important policy and social issues in ways that make it very hard to, to strike sensible bargains. And when you go back to fundamental rights, as you say, you when you look to the Constitution, you're reading a document which was written before many of these controversies were considered in any way political. I mean, abortion is an, is an obvious example, but also the modern power of guns and firearms, for for example, is that is that part of the problem that there? If when you when you go back to it in this way, you are looking at a fundamentally outdated document. Or is there still some value, do you think, in, in taking the Constitution as absolutely central to American identity and rights? Uh, well, I think there's a lot of value in the American Constitution. I think uh, we, we underestimate the extent to which it really was the model for liberal democracies around the world, especially in Europe. We like to think either in Britain of the sort of gradual constitutional evolution of the United Kingdom or the French Revolution, which actually came after the American Revolution, right? But at the time in which the framers designed this political system, 
there's no precedent for self-governing republics that actually endure and succeed. And they really did set the model in many important ways for what our modern political systems uh, look like. And I think in the United States, you're not going to have a fundamental renegotiation of the United States Senate, for example. Some of my friends say, oh, let's change the Senate. It's just not going to happen for any number of reasons. And so I think it is worth defending the, the United States Constitution. And I think it is, it is one of the brilliant documents in the history of ideas. However, I do think it makes sense to try and put some important issues of public policy back into the political process so that elections determine what we do, so that Congress actually is empowered to make decisions and strike bargains, uh, rather than more and more areas of American politics being delegated to the Supreme Court in the way it has been. Now, by the way, when I first arrived in the United States 10 or 12 years ago, it tended to be uh, people on the left who defended the court deciding about everything because the left used to have a majority on the court. Now it tends to be people on the right uh, starting to uh, uh, defend the, the need for a very active Supreme Court and people on the left starting to claim that it's really anti-democratic. So there's a lot of hypocrisy here. But I think that uh, we need to preserve the basic shape of the United States Constitution. We need to preserve the ability of the Supreme Court to step in if a president oversteps the boundary of the authority. But I also think we need to find a way to strike legislative compromises about issues uh, from gun control to abortion to campaign finance, all the other kinds of things that have been taken out of the political process by a very activist Supreme Court, not just over the last 10 years, but over the last 100. So you'd like the Supreme Court to step back a bit from these issues? Yeah, and part of this is, you know, when you're thinking, as I know Yasmin has a lot, and as I have a lot, obviously, about uh, how to keep democracy stable and how to make sure, for example, that when you have authoritarian populists like Viktor Orban in Hungary or like uh, Narendra Modi in India or like Donald Trump in the United States win office, um, it is important that there be independent institutions that are able to constrain what they do. But these independent institutions will only have the legitimacy to do so if they aren't embroiled in day-to-day political controversies all of the time. So I'm in favor of a strong form of judicial review of a court which can step in and tell the government, hang on a second, you're doing something here that really the Constitution doesn't give you a right to do. But in that kind of crunch time, a court will only have the legitimacy to actually do that if it hasn't delegitimized itself by taking political stances on a thousand policy issues every day. So I'm in favor of strong judicial review, but for a narrow set of cases when we're really talking about the basic integrity of our political system and our ability as voters to ensure that a democratically elected government can also be removed in democratic fashion at the next election. You've often warned of the dangers of the culture wars in America and the importance of free speech. You argue in the manifesto, if I can call it that, for persuasion, the organisation that you set up, that liberals need to stand up for free speech. What's making it so difficult to do that in America? Well, I think that you have a a terrible weakening of the basic norms of our political system. You have it obviously on the right um, with uh, Donald Trump and the Republican Party attacking some of the most basic elements of a political system, like the fact that uh, we decide who gets to govern through free and fair elections and that you have to accept your political adversary as legitimate rather than uh, threatening to lock her up, as Trump uh, did over and over in 2016. 
And then if you lose an election, you have to say, well, that sucks, but I'm going to go home and I'll try again in four years, um, as, as Trump refused to do in 2020. But you also now have a milieu that has really become deeply separated from the rest of society. You know, I'm an immigrant to the United States. I grew up in continental Europe. I went to college and to university in England, actually. And I came here for graduate school. And I'm really struck by what that experience has been like socially. You know, my, my circle of friends and acquaintances and colleagues in the United States is highly diverse in terms of national origin, religion, ethnicity. It is incredibly homogeneous in terms of social class and outlook. I barely know anybody in this country who didn't go to a college or a selective college or, you know, a really elite college or graduate school. And what I call the influential million, you know, the million people, or if you want to say just 100,000, 10,000 people in the sort of inner circles of Americans who actually decide what's happening in the country, journalists and editors at uh, the, the magazine that Yasmin and I write for, uh, or at the New York Times, um, the people running the most influential foundations in the country, Hollywood producers and actors, people running local NGOs that are very influential and so on. They are just, uh, they've become so separated from the rest of society in, in their social lives and their attitudes that I'm shocked by the extent to which many of them now really look down on the country. Um, you know, there's a snobism that comes with being part of a kind of elite in every country. And I see that in Britain where there's a strong class element to it. And I see that in Germany and France in different ways. But the sort of casual ways in which my friends and acquaintances in the United States just say the average American is, is an idiotic bigot who is a danger to, you know, the survival of our country is just really striking to me. And so as a result, I think we've gotten... Uh, a deeply illiberal uh, uh, elite culture, which thinks that some of the most basic principles of free speech or due process are somehow right-wing values, um, which do not stand up for them within their own organizations, and which lead to you know puritanical witch hunts um, uh, uh, in which somebody who perhaps has done something wrong in some kind of small way, or perhaps is simply falsely accused of having done something wrong, bears the consequences of loss of job but also of social isolation in the same sort of way that would have been true in a Massachusetts town in the 17th century when they were said to be blasphemed, to have blasphemed. How can we get ourselves out of these milieu though, though? It's it's very difficult because it's it's com- it's not just comforting. It's it's easy to surround yourselves with people that you agree with. How practically speaking can we do that? Is it all the fault of social media or are there other things at play as well? Yeah, it's really hard. I think about that as somebody who's, who's an academic, right? I mean, uh, my university is, is, is a really great university. It's very selective um, and it's very, very good at recruiting a diverse set of students. But even if you identify the really talented 17-year-old from a part of a country that doesn't send as many people to elite colleges historically or from a demographic group that is underrepresented in the American elite, what happens next is that you take them at the age of 17, you put them on this beautiful campus, surround them with a lot of people who are very driven, very smart, and many of them do come from affluent backgrounds. And, you know, for the next 20, 30 years, they're never going to have touch with ordinary Americans again, most likely. They're going to go on to, uh, you know, work in, in 
finance or the tech sector or perhaps politics and nonprofits around people who've also gone to extremely elite degrees. They will all be living in what are called super zips in the United States, which is to say people who have, you know, 80, 90 percent of people who've gone to college who um, perhaps aren't rich yet if you're in your 20s and you live in, you know, uh, Crown Heights or Bushwick or somewhere in Brooklyn, but it's all people who probably got to go on to make quite a lot of money. And it's just really, really hard to ensure that these people have contact with the rest of society. Now, there's a few things we can do. I mean, one that people always talk about is some form of probably voluntary national service where you can go and spend time with people in, in the middle of a country. I think that's a good idea. I don't think it's a silver bullet. One thing that I want, at least for uh, political science professors, campaign consultants, and so on, is uh, I think uh, a lot of elite discourse would be better if people were forced to watch one focus group a week. There's obviously a completely unrealistic suggestion, <laughs> but it's just think, you know, I know so many political science professors who hold forth about the views and the nature of average Americans, and they have never actually spoken to one, and they have never watched a focus group. And I think when you do that, um, you recognize that people are not politically sophisticated by and large, they don't tend to think about politics very much and so on, but they're reasonable people and they're decent people who actually you know, have real concerns that they're driven by and, and speak about the world in ways that are often very charming and very winning um, and, and sometimes even quite wise. And I just think that the one very small thing that, that I wish my my colleagues and friends did was was to do that. That's not a solution in scale. Yasmin, can I bring you in here a bit? Because, of course, you're from California, as you as you said. Yeah. <laughs> do you feel this? Are you part of the million that Yash is talking about? Do you feel that's a problem if you are? I, I felt myself shrinking in my chariot <laughs> as we were talking. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I and I, you know... I, even being, you know, I, I think some of my peers, you know, I'm I'm the daughter of like immigrants, a first generation American. So, you know, to an extent, we I think we we tell ourselves with that sort of background that we do have kind of an insight and an experience. And I think in a way we do. But, you know, I also grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I, thankfully, you know, my my family was quite comfortable, um, went to a selective university, now work in the mainstream media. I mean, and, and you know, grew up on one of the coastal, you know, quote unquote, media elites. Um, I think it is a problem. And I think, you know, it was very easy to be in this sort of liberal, predominantly democratic echo chamber. The extent to which I've challenged my own self, I mean, this is like very kind of somewhat different from what we're talking about. But I mean, it's a, it's the only experience I can point to is, you know, being a Palestinian American, being on a college campus, I often force myself to engage with American Israelis or, or, or Jewish American students and friends of mine. Um, and we would have very difficult conversations. But I think about how much that kind of took and how I often noticed a lot of my fellow Palestinian peers and often probably fellow American Jewish and Israeli peers not doing the same thing. I imagine if I tried to do that within a political context instead of that sort of very focused context, that would have been very difficult and very frustrating, but probably very rewarding, not like unlike what Yasha was explaining, I think, just then about forcing yourself into a situation where you're engaging with these people regularly, you're having these difficult conversations. And I do feel stronger for it. I feel like I have a better insight. You make better arguments when you know what your opponent believes as well. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, our, our people who hold different politics are, are you know, somehow uh, against you or, or, you know, opponents, you know, we're, we're fellow Americans at the end of the day, we should be able to engage with each other. But, but no, I think I think it is a problem. And I think Journalists in general like to think that, you know, one of the favorite parts of my job is talking to 
a lot of people and talking to people who know these topics much better than me. Um, I think obviously, but you know, how do we practice that in our daily lives? I think that is a challenge. I think Yasha brings up a great point. And um, yeah, it's certainly something I'm very conscious of when I even just see, you know, who do I surround myself with? <laughs> but, but saying that, I, I will say, and this isn't like, you know, a cop out, but you know, I have family who voted for President Trump. Mm-hmm. We do not, and we have did more difficult conversations than we did. Actually, I find we speak less. We do speak still. But I find we tend to skirt politics because we think it's easier. Maybe we should be doing the opposite. Maybe we should be engaging more. Because I think if you do share blood with someone or at least have to engage with them once a year at Thanksgiving, it is a bit easier. <laughs> yeah, I noticed you use the phrase fellow Americans. And I quite I like that phrase. And I know the French uh, president, whoever it is, always uses a something similar, cher compatriote or something. Yeah, yeah. But we don't have anything like that in Britain, My do we? My fellow Brits. <laughs> we're, we're all subjects. We're just <laughs> subjects to Her Majesty. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel this, though, Arthur? I mean, do you feel part of an elite? Do you, ever, do you make efforts to, to or, or have, uh, we not, have we not got the same problem in the UK? No, we've definitely, I mean, Yasha describes his his social circle and, and a version of that is my social. Obviously, there are differences in America and Britain, but, you know, people who've gone to top universities who work in professions who have a whole series of predictable opinions. I mean, one, one of the things I'd be interested to ask is, because you, you very generously talked about what you get from watching a focus group but one of the sort of things that this is not going to reflect well on me but perhaps with a lot of people who might be classed as in a sort of liberal elite i get quite angry when i think about things that are believed by a large uh, proportion of the population whether it's you know in america it might be to do with whether or not donald trump actually won the election the big lie you know which which has millions of adherents here in the uk versions of the sort of the brexit argument again of course have millions of adherents or even you know there are lots of uh, things like attitudes to capital punishment all, all kinds of markers of liberal and or conservative views which as someone who tends to hold the liberal views I'm not very good at understanding people on the other side. And so I, I suppose I was thinking to myself, if I was observing that focus group, w- would it would it do me any good? W- what would it do for my blood pressure? <laughs> well, first of all, I think that you would find that the justifications that people have for views that you don't hold tend to be morally decent. Now, they may be based on limited knowledge or they may miss what you think is the most important moral consideration. But for example, in something like the death penalty, I don't think that most people are going to say, you know, let them try. I think they're going to say, look, this is really hard. And, you know, I'm uncomfortable with the state doing this. But you know what? If somebody has done something that's sufficiently heinous, I think we just need the strongest punishment. And that's what that is. And, and you know, again, that, that's not going to convince you necessarily. I'm not sure that it convinces me. But, but I think when you see that people actually are responding to understandable moral instincts and they're uh, expressing them in ways that do demonstrate some real thought and some real compassion. You might feel more positively about the fact that a majority of Britons, for example, are in favor of the death penalty, right? The other thing that I would say is I would distinguish between um, the angry minority and the majority of people, right? There's lots of views. You know, you're always going to find 10 to 20% of people who believe really terrible things and who might also believe them in terrible ways. It's not just that they come to a conclusion that you find to be terrible, but they really are all of the cliches you have about people, right? But that's not the majority of people, and that's that's important in democracy, right? I mean, during the years of Donald Trump, people always ask me, how do you convince the Trump superfans to sort of realize that he's actually not what they believe him to be? And I always said, it doesn't matter. 
Trump can have super fans. What matters is whether 50% of people are going to vote for him or not, right? What matters is is the majority. And um, I, I do worry about an attitude that a lot of people have, and that's probably not just in the United States, but also in Britain and also in continental Europe, where they think, you know, a majority of people really can't be trusted to make those kinds of moral judgments and to think sensibly about politics. Because logically, you might be able to be a Democrat and believe that. But sociologically, it becomes very hard. If you really think that a majority of your fellow citizens aren't capable of decency, um, then it's very hard to justify why we should believe in our democratic system. Um, and I think that most of, the, most of the time people do, right? And some important issues, I disagree with the majority. Um, I think people can give their trust to political candidates that I think are going to abuse their trust in, in bad and sometimes dangerous ways. But I do think that most of the time, most people actually um, have understandable motives and uh, reasonable concerns and respond to moral considerations. If I'm, I am to be a Democrat, I think I have to believe that. Finally, as members of the Rail, Maritime and Transport Union threaten strike action and dispute over jobs, paying conditions, Britain's train networks are facing potentially big disruption over the summer. Obviously, the train is a responsible choice, but you can't get everywhere by rail, even without strikes. So where would the panel go if petrol prices or EV charges, let's say, because we are up to speed now, were no obstacle? Yasmin, you've been living in the UK for a few years, but I think you've told me you haven't had much chance to explore it yet. Where are you planning to go um, when you get the chance? Yeah, I was going to say, I have a pandemic to thank for that, which is kind of my my evergreen excuse. But um, I feel like I could name the number of places that I've been on like my two hands. I mean, I've seen some really beautiful places in this country, but it's just so huge. Um, I did do, recently did, well, it was a rail trip technically through Scotland. So it was like Edinburgh, Perth and Inverness just kind of every day. I would want to do something along the coast though. And I feel like that's probably easy done on train. I'd also like to hike in Wales because I've heard that's beautiful and I haven't been to Wales yet. Um, yeah, that is. Uh, but you've got choice of South Wales or North Wales there. So you've got the Brecon Beacons or Snowdonia. Oh, yeah. Well, if listeners get in touch with recommendations, I'll well, be also, taking them this summer. If you don't come and visit me in the Cotswolds, I'm going to be personally offended. So you know, you've got all the these Cotswolds places yet. It's on It's also your list. my list, yeah. 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 <laughs> Cotswolds are very beautiful, it's true. Yeah. I don't, I don't actually like them very much. For me, they're just, I'm sorry, Arthur, but they're a bit twee occasionally. <laughs> and I, I, I like something that's just a bit more rugged, I suppose, a bit more hilly. Um, have you done any great road trips abroad, though, that you that you look back on? Being a California native, I feel like the longest car journey I've done is from San Francisco to Los Angeles, which for this country, I mean, it's like six or seven hour drive. It's probably you could I could probably get pretty far in in the UK and in California actually doesn't take you very far. Um, No, I've always wanted to do one of those US road trips, though, because I hear Brits talk about them a lot and I get embarrassed that they've (laughs) seen more of my country than I have. So that's uh, definitely on the bucket list, I think. I haven't done a US road trip. I, I do want to. I've done a US rail trip, which I know does not Ooh. fit in with what we're talking about mm. here. But I did a great trip where I went from basically um, Boston down to New Orleans. 
And then I cut out quite a long stretch of quite boring train and flew to San Francisco <laughs> and then headed north from there to Vancouver. But it was great. I actually talked to so many people. And, you know, to Yasha's point, I met a lot of people who I would never have met otherwise. It was a great way. It was just after 9-11 as it happens. And there was so much to talk about. And people really wanted to talk. And they wanted to talk about America and American politics in a way that I wasn't really expecting. Because people are a lot more literate about politics in many ways in America, I think, than they are in Britain, uh, which is a curious thing when you're when you're there. So that was that was a great that was a great trip. Arthur, I can see you in a four wheel drive bumping over a dirt track <laughs> to a sort of remote place. But where where would you like to go? Uh, well, I've certainly done a bit of that. And, and um, in terms of uh, road trips that, that I, I've been on that are great memories, um, uh, crossing the Sahara Desert and also um, driving around Yemen, both places now that are quite difficult to visit. So sort of nice to have those memories. I think if I could go anywhere and I was allowed to sort of wave a, a geopolitical wand, it would. I'd love to drive through Iran because it's it's by all accounts an incredibly diverse and physically diverse but also culturally diverse country. But I think it would be a bad idea. So um, <laughs> the uh, one thing, I, thinking of forward drives, I'm actually currently helping some people raise funds um, to get a, uh, a, a vehicle to a, um, a particular bit of the Ukrainian military that is, is in need. Um, and someone's going to have to drive it to Lviv. So that might be the road trip of the summer. And you might be doing that. Well, possibly. Oh, that, that's, that's, uh, that would certainly be yeah, an interesting trip. Yasha, what was your best US road trip? I presume you have been on a US road trip or perhaps like Yasmin, you haven't. Well, you know, I have sort of, but but actually, my most memorable road trip is a is a British road trip. So, um, you know, I went to college in England, and at the end of my time there, uh, my 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 British friend said, you know, you haven't really seen the country. You've seen London, you've seen Cambridge, you haven't seen much of the rest of uh, of UK. And so, we applied for some ridiculous fund that we know where we knew nobody ever applied for the Lapsley Fund for Medieval Studies. Um, uh, (laughs) We were really interested in going around, um, uh, you know, looking at medieval churches around the UK. Um, Were you genuinely interested in this? And and my friend figured out that, so this was in 2003, and there must have been sort of a good piece of new labor social legislation mandating that uh, black cabs in London should become more wheelchair accessible. But as a result, a lot of the old cabs were uh, too expensive to retrofit to become wheelchair accessible. And so uh, my friend Will went and bought a London black cab for 500 quid. <laughs> and we, we traveled around Britain in, in this black cab. It was uh, my friend Will, my friend Louisa. And the most mem- there are many, many wonderful, memorable parts of it. But perhaps the most memorable is that we were in uh, uh, Bath. And we were supposed to meet uh, with some friend and crash at this friend's place. But somehow this fell through. We couldn't locate our friend. And so we said, well, what are we going to do? And we decided, well, we're just going to sleep in the cab and, you know, find some quiet back alley and go to sleep in the cab, which we proceeded to do. And this is, by the way, a very tame trip. I mean, you know, nothing uh, interesting uh, happened in, 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 in any romantic or sexual compartment on, on this whole of this trip. It was quite hot. So when we woke up, we were sort of in... Uh, uh, states of a decent but to the outside onlooker perhaps slightly concerning undress um, <laughs> and, and when we woke up we realized that we somehow perfectly placed ourselves between a train platform and a school run so there are these elementary <laughs> like 
clambering onto the cab to look into, you know, two guys lying on the floor of it and a girl <laughs> sitting on the, on the, on the seat pad. Um, so, so that was quite memorable. And um, uh, there you are. I did get to see a little bit of Britain. Did anyone try to hail you on your journey? I just feel like someone sees a black cab and be like, oh, well, outside Stonehenge or something, like random. <laughs> well, but, but, well, there's two two amazing things. One is that we once were just deep in the highlands and we hadn't seen any other car for a long time. And then we saw another black cab coming the other way. <laughs> it's utterly surreal. And we always looked at each other and thought, do we just have a hallucination? Um, the other is that, that, that we did play a prank on a friend where uh, my friend Will was was driving the cab, um, and uh, I, I met up with his friend and said, and said, "Oh, let's 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 get a cab to go where we're going." And so we hailed the cab of my friend Will, <laughs> and um, Will first of all proceeded to drive completely in the wrong direction of London. This is in London before we sort of set off, and then B was erratic in all kinds of other ways, and we kept waiting for our friend to recognize Will and they really knew each other well and and he never did because he is a <laughs> very strange human being who concerningly I think went on to be a senior civil servant in charge of counterterrorism, which always makes me a little bit worried. <laughs> oh, There's none of those around here. No. <laughs> Looking at Arthur. Um, no, I um yeah, I suppose the strangest one I went on was in Namibia. In terms of it, it's just uh, it wasn't strange for any particular reason. It's just I had never been anywhere so utterly empty, mm. and you there were not many roads in Namibia, and there are not many places, um, and so you can drive for many many hours, and there is nothing. And I found that very very disquieting for someone who was used to being living in England and there being something you know every few yards on a road. But in Namibia there was nothing except desert, and so that was yeah. It, but I as I say it wasn't nearly as good as the US trip in terms of actually talking to people, unfortunately. So what if if fuel consumption were no object, uh, Yasmin? What would you drive? Would you go for a you know massive SUV or would you be driving around in a Mini? Oh, I literally was thinking of a Mini the moment you said it. I was like, I don't know if that's what... <laughs> Hell, I'll do a Prius. I'll be eco-friendly. No. Um, oh, gosh. I don't, the thing is, I have actually haven't driven since I lived in California because I've just constantly lived in in cities with trains. I feel like it'd be fun to have um, a convertible, kind of a convertible, hopefully eco-friendly car. I'd do that. <laughs> How about you, Arthur? Well, the, the thing about cars, I think particularly if you're a bloke, is that if you've got, if you've got sort of two strong opinions about it, you come across as a bit of a wanker. So <laughs> I, think, I think I've seen something really boring, like a Ford Mondeo, you know, just to be Mondeo man, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. Do you drive? I do, yes. And what do you drive? Oh, I mean, I don't, I don't in fact, own a car, but, you know, I, I drive in the sense that, I, that I'm capable of driving. I have a driving license and, uh, and, and I enjoy and if, it, actually, a lot when I'm in the countryside. And if you were going to the car hire place, uh, car rental, and you were, you know, ordering your dream car, what would it be? Somehow now I'm picturing a, a road trip uh, around Italy with an old Cinquecento, you know, one of those old 500s. Nice. I think actually it would become quite uncomfortable, so probably it would be nice yeah. to have you know some some disgusting <laughs> mid-size SUV, but but it, it would be more romantic with a Cinquecento, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, yes. who needs aircon, especially in Italy? Now, well, luckily, this is a decision I do not have to take because I still do not have my driving license, nor do I intend to get one. No. So I am excluding myself from this conversation. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What are the books, films, or TV shows that have given our panelists a break from the bruising world of politics? Arthur, how about you? Uh, yeah, well, so. There was a, a thing that came out on um, Apple TV, uh, I think it was about a year ago, called Tehran, which was about undercover Israeli spies in Iran. Um, and it was super exciting. And that was the first series. And there's now a second series. And it's terribly exciting. So if you haven't seen the first series, you can enjoy that. And then you can enjoy the second one, which is still coming out uh, every week at the moment. Fantastic. Yasmin, how about you? I actually went back to the theatre for the first time since I think before the pandemic. I went to the National Theatre to see a play called The Father and the Assassin, which is about a guy called Naturam Godse, who's the assassin of Mahatma Gandhi. And it was um, a really, really fascinating play. I did technically go for work because I have a piece coming out about it, but I was so like just transported to a different world that it did feel like a break from politics, at least. Well, I um, went to the O2 Arena, which is otherwise known as the Millennium Dome. And I have never been before, which is extraordinary, really, because I lived in London the whole time it's been open, but I've never actually been inside. And I was terrified out of my wits because I stupidly booked a ticket uh, near the top of the top, uh, the, the very top seats. And I almost left immediately, but I did <laughs> manage to stay and see the Pet Shop Boys. So that was uh, very uh, exciting. Yesha, do you have an escape route? Well, I'm going to give you a very highbrow and a very lowbrow answer. The highbrow answer is that I've stumbled across uh, a really wonderful little book called China in 10 Words by Yu Hua. It was a really nice introduction to the Cultural Revolution, the changes of the 80s and uh, China in the 2000s. And it's really a beautiful little book. The very lowbrow answer is that for some random reason, I was reminded of Kitchen Nightmares and then wasted an evening watching three and a half episodes Um uh, and it's really fun because you just see, uh, you know, people, uh, this family drama and people mismanaging these restaurants and desperately trying to do better, but being sort of constrained by by their personal failings. It really is human nature writ large in the form of, you know, shouty Gordon Ramsay. It's kind of great. <laughs> yeah, we have something called that, uh, that. We call it the Great British Bake Off. But it's not in restaurants. <laughs> it's just individuals who are forced to bake cakes. It's a, yeah, sounds quite similar though. And there's, there's like Jürgen the German or something, is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, Jürgen, he's I'm, great. Sounds very suspect to me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Arthur Snell. Thank you. To Yasmin Sirhan. Thank you. And to our special guest, Yasha Mank. Thank you so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Over the next few days, we have a mini-series where we ponder the prospect of the metaverse. We ask what a day in cyberspace might be like, what practical and philosophical problems we'll face there, and how our brains might be warped by a further leap online. If you like what we're doing, support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Backers get a shout-out on the show, and here are some now. Hello from me and many thanks to Rebecca Lewis, David Peters and Craig Tullock. Many thanks from me to Paul Gregory, Katia G and David Hawkins. And finally, best wishes from me to David Bruce, Andy Stubbings and Claudia Capozzi. We'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor with Arthur Snell and Yasmin Saran. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. 
The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelma Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Assistant production by Alina Ganatra. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>